Hey, bitch talkers, happy Friday. We're beginning to wind down our Sundance 22 coverage, this time with our special documentaries episode. We're again joined by our festival co-host, John Wildman of FilmsGoneWild.com. And today, we're talking about the films Descendant, Free Chol Su Lee, and Framing Agnes. Let's get rolling. Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear... Rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. Here we are at Sundance 2022, virtually. And I am John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief of FilmsGoneWild.com with my Bitch Talk podcast teammates, Aaron Lim and Angela Tabora. And right now, we're going to talk about the documentary Descendant, and we have our director with us, Margaret Brown. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right. We always like to start this off by having our filmmaker introduce the audience to the film because they have not seen it as yet. So tell us what Descendant is about. Well, um, Descendant is about my hometown of Mobile, Alabama, where the last slave ship was discovered two years ago. Um, although it was scuttled and burned there in 1860. And the film is a kind of a story of, of a few different sets of the descendants, um, the descendants from the Clotilda and the descendants of the people that brought them there. And, and you know, it, it's, of course, that's, that's the thing that ties everything together, but it's also wonderful in how it deals with environmental racism and, uh, and, and other aspects, which I found uh, fascinating uh, myself because I live in South Dallas, um, oh. which is got which is chock full of environmental <laughs> racism, um, yeah. and, and so I know the struggle very much um, from from how uh, my wife and I have have dealt with it and worked with it here. So I was very enthusiastic to to see, um, which we don't often see, uh, civic politics in uh, in action in the film. Yeah. And, 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 and I know that I, I, I know uh, um, um, we're going to get into um, the historical aspect of this and what that meant to the community, but I would love to actually start off with that and, 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 and talk about, you know, your approach to filming that, because let's face it, sometimes that can be really dry to watch, but you tied it in so nicely into the lifeblood of, of this film. Well, one thing that's really interesting about Africatown is that 2,000 people live there and there, I don't know if you noticed at the end of the film how many how many activist groups are in Africatown. There's two environmental groups. I mean, in, uh, there are 2,000 people there. I mean, people come from other parts of the city, but it's not like a giant community. And one thing that really struck me when I first started filming for this film, because I actually made another film um, 15 years ago that was also sort of about the Clotilda, a different, it's a it's this is in a weird way a part two, but the films are very different. Um, but uh, you know, I was like, wow, like the and it's a very like elderly community. I mean, there are children there, like um, there are young families there, you know. But it, I was just like, all these like septuagenarians are very active with like 
politics, you know, they really care. And it was, it was very striking. I feel like I went to more, you know, activist meetings and community meetings in Africatown than I did in the whole rest of the city and the rest of my life combined. And that was very inspiring. So, I mean, you know, um, Ramsey Sprague, um, the native, um, the native organizer who moves to Africa. I mean, his story is not really in the movie because the movie's more focused on the descendants, but he, he basically moved to Mobile to, to help with, you know, their struggle. And, um, you know, it, it, I think there's a lot of passion around what Africatown means and could mean. So I think people are really drawn to that. Yeah, and, and on the topic of that struggle, just first, thank you for this very powerful and moving film. Um, and we, we're obviously going through this range of emotions with the descendants, rightfully so. But I'm also interested in, in your own emo emotional journey in creating this film as a native uh, and, and coming to terms with your homeland's past. Sure. I mean, well, I feel like as a, a white person who grew up in the South, like I... I feel like um, it's really tricky to make a movie like this. When I first started it, I thought it would be like Order of Myths, the film I made that's sort of a precursor to this film. I always describe that as a film that's sort of like white anthropology, like looking at what whiteness looks like. And I thought that um, this film would be more like that because Helen Mayer, the mayor, one of the mayor descendants is in that film. She traveled with, she went to Sundance with the film. She traveled around the world with the film. And um, and she spoke to classrooms of children about what it's like very bravely, like what it's like to be from a family that has a slave owning past and not just a slave owning past, but a slaver past, like people who literally transported slaves. And she talked about it very openly and very honestly. And I was sort of like, wow, like I don't in the South, you often see there's a lot of shame and denial around this. So I was kind of like, she's. I was impressed, to be honest, like I was like, um, she's owning it, you know, she's she's talking about it very openly in front of children and not shying away from truth. And so I was very surprised. And the mayor family has a has a, um, a history of silence around the Clotilde. I thought, oh, certainly she traveled to Ireland with me and spoke so eloquently she'll do this film. But I was wrong. And so from the get go, you know, but all these other people, you know, um, I just thought like, oh, I can't, I, I very much hubris on my part that I thought I could get her to talk to me, that she would surely our friendship would, she would talk about this. But I, I thought it was obviously some kind of, I mean, I don't know what it is, but they don't talk to anybody about this. So, um, so, I, so from the get go, I wasn't really able to get another, the other like side to the story as it will. But as the film progressed, I, I stopped thinking it was very important because it became very clear to me. It's the story of, of the community of Africatown and their beauty and their eloquence and their struggle. And that's the story. It's, it, we don't need, we don't need the other side. We can see the other side. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I don't, you know, everyone talks about balance and documentary. I don't think it has to be balanced in that way. You know, that's not to me, like if the other side is in denial, is that really balanced anyway? So, um, so I'm very happy with how it turned out, even though all throughout, I was like, a white person telling a story about black people. This is not what I thought I would be doing. This is, it, it, I, it's just like the, you know, these deep questions of like, am I even doing the right thing? Um, 
So, you know, I kept on regardless because I did think because of my ties to the place and my history in the community that I had a right to tell the story or one of the stories about Africatown. I certainly don't think my story is the only story, but a story in a long history of, you know, of the struggle, I guess. Uh, I'm going to jump in and say, Margaret, you are the right person to tell the story as a white woman. Um, Ange and I had an anti-racist educator on a month ago or so, and she's a white woman. And I had asked her, do you think it's up to white people to actually be the um, the fighters in this fight of anti-racism? Are they the leaders? And she's like, yeah. So you're doing what you're supposed to be doing with this film. I I believe. Um and from what she said, she's an educator. She knows everything. Um, but I, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she knows what she's talking about. Um, you talked about Ramsey Sprague. Um, can you talk about Kamau, the marine archaeologist? I really loved yeah. him and his story. And he's just so gentle. Well, it's so funny. I almost said something. But right when you guys started talking, I looked at my phone and he was calling me. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> he can join in. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but he's, it was, it was a few minutes ago, but, um, but yeah, he's, I love him so much. Like he, um, he's also, um, he's, he's a yoga teacher too, and he's six foot six. So to watch him do yoga, it's like no matter what, anyway, he's such a graceful, beautiful man inside and out. But, um, but yeah, I know he spoke like four years ago, very early on in the film. And I was just like, wow, the power of this person. He has to be in the movie. Um, so I basically harangued him until he agreed to. <laughs> Got it. So, yeah. And um, and he adds so much. I mean, he has the, he has just such a, I just feel like I was, I'm so blessed that these people shared their story with me and, and he is just, I remember, I remember where I was, I was like sitting on my porch in LA and, um, and, and he, I was, he was telling me about um, what it's like to work on these ships and the emotions that, that come of this work. And I was just like, if he could communicate this to a broad audience, like how powerful is this narrative? I, it was so moving. I was like quietly crying while he was talking to me. And then like, he didn't return my calls for like six months. <laughs> so <it> was, <laughs> and I was just like, what do I have to do? You know, <laughs> but, but yeah, so it was just one of those things where you just have to keep just trying to get the people you believe are the right people to tell the story. You just have to keep at them. So, and now we're friends. I'm so happy he's my friend. <laughs> Honored. <laughs> I would love for you to, to talk about um, the process of, tried to make sure you didn't have a five or six hour long movie here um, because you have so many people um, yeah. in this community and with, with, and that, that are involved in different aspects of this that all deserve their camera time, that all deserve to have their voices heard. And, yeah. you, you know, and then you, you wind up in the editing bay with hours and hours of footage and you have to figure out, well, how, when, when do I precisely do this? So talk about that editing process because, you know, again, yeah. it's something that I respect immensely when I see a film like this, because I go, holy crap, there's a lot of information. And yet I'm, I'm right here along for the ride. I'm not getting bored in the least. And, um, and, and I'm also um, 
just like the gentleman we, we just talked about, um, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the woman who at one point goes, you know something, I don't even care if they find this ship. And then when yeah. they do, she couldn't be more enthusiastic than anybody <laughs> else, right? Right. And, and, and those moments, please talk about that. Sure. I mean, well, with that, with Joycelyn specifically, like she, I think she saw the power of the artifact to help preserve the story and spread the story. And so it's where she's coming from. It's like, she sees the community around her. She sees her, her, the people she grew up with, um, her family, and she sees like them being systematically ignored. And she, you know, she has, she had cancer from, you know, arguably from like the chemical factories, like the scene where she talks about fanning away the stuff that's toxic. Like they didn't know what it was as a child, like things like that. Um, so I, I think like, um, you know, um, I, I, I think like she, was just like, look, look at this place. Like, look at what we need, the ship, whatever. Like, you know, Nat National Geographic is gonna come in and they did find the ship. She feels the power of what that means and like what it's gonna do. And then the rest of the film is about seeing what happens with that power. And like the decision points the city has then, the decision points the community has then, how are they gonna control the narrative? What are the, what is the city going to do to help them or hurt them? Like, these are the questions I think we're left with when you're talking about a film about civics, like, you know, the city has a lot of power to make the wrong or right decision, work against or for the community. Like when, when Vita says, I don't want to be a part of it, I want to be it. And who are her allies and who are her enemies? So those, that's sort of what I think, like, what I want people to be left with is like, how do you be an ally to that? How do you be that? And those are the things we talked about as a crew. How do we, how do we get there to where people at the end, when Anderson says toward the end, like um, when he's at EJI, well, there's a, there's a scene in the film. I should I haven't done press that long, so Rusty. Um, but when you know, there's a character in the film who says, you know, when they're when they're at the lynching memorial in Montgomery, and he's there visiting to see the to see. It's very powerful. We don't show it because they don't allow cameras in there, and. Um, and he says, and he looks at people as they're leaving and he says, um, you know, going to a museum, it can be like a blip in your life, but what do you do with this knowledge? What do you do when you leave? And I think that to me, that's like really the film. What you, now you know all this, now what do you do? Right, and that is a major part of, a major theme for this film is the importance of telling stories and continuing to tell these stories. And I wanna thank you for introducing me to Zora Neale Hurston, who is yeah. the first black female fil filmmaker. And you quote her book, Barracoon, throughout the film. And I, I wanted to know about your decision to kind of make that the, the common thread throughout. Sure. Um, well, very early on, I was very inspired by Zora Neale Hurston. I have been for a long time. Um, my co-writer, um, Kern Jackson, um, the folklorist in the film, he kind of came up like sort of studying her practices as he became a folklorist, like how she, like those tapes that he shows, shares with us in the film, um, those are things that like he recorded 25 years ago for his PhD. And, um, and his PhD was about Africatown. So, um, so, you know, we have some very recent, like, you know, like uh, tapes from his like folklore. I forget what he calls it. He has a word for what he calls, um, and it's a different word than he used in documentaries. But it's like when I first heard him say it, it was it sounds like something out of a spy movie. I can't I cannot remember the word, but the way <laughs> you talk. Oh, an informant is what you call someone when you're a folklorist and you're getting them to talk about you know um, 
stories of their family. It's called an informant. And I, what are you even talking about an informant? Like where this is not a movie about the FBI, but <laughs> now I understand what he means. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, uh, I think it's an appropriate way to actually uh, in the interview because the, the film informs us quite a bit. Um, and again, not simply on just the historical note and, and the accomplishment of, of finally finding concrete proof that uh, the ship existed, that, this, that the stories weren't just mythologies, that, that it actually uh, happened, but also to tie it in to the real context of what happens with local communities and, you know, and, and, and being able to, to give them, um, you know, kind of like their own fighting spirit um, to, you know, to, to, to champion their own causes. Uh, it's really uh, quite the film. Uh, again, the title of the film is Descendant, which is screening at the 2022 Virtual Sundance. And we've been talking to Margaret Brown, the director. Margaret, it's been great talking to you about this film. It's been, it's been really great talking to you all too. Thank you so much. All right, here we are at Virtual Sundance 2022. My name is John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief for FilmsGoneWild.com, joined by the Bitch Talk podcast twosome of Aaron Lim and Angela Tabora. And right now we are going to have another. We've got just a series of fantastic documentaries. This is another great one. Free Chol Suli is the title of the documentary. And we have the uh, directing team behind that, Julie Ha and Eugene Yi. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having, us. for having us. It's great to be here. Okay, now you know, and I always wonder if 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 the if when we have two directors, if you guys did like a rock paper scissors to decide who's going to take these kind of jobs. <laughs> but one of you, uh, we want you to describe the film to our audience who has not seen it as yet. So who's going to take the honors to tell us about Free Chul Suli? I can do that. So Free Chul Suli is a film about a Korean immigrant. Uh, in 1970, San Francisco, who went to prison for a murder he didn't commit. And it's about the movement that sprang up to free him. He would be in prison for 10 years uh, before they were able to get him out. But he would struggle once he, came on, once he came out, not just because he'd been in prison for 10 years and because of the institutionalization of that experience, but because of the expectations of the community as well and how much he'd become a symbol for, for, for the entire Asian American community. And so our film <clears throat> explores that relationship between the man and the movement he inspired and also explores the question of what happens to the man after the movement is done. Ange and I live in San Francisco, and it was great to see all that archival footage. Um, but I wanted to know about the choice of the narrator and the narration throughout the film. If either one of you can talk about who this person is and, and why you both made that choice. Sure. His name is um, Sebastian Yoon. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree that he he does a really a beautiful job um, and brings such an emotional authenticity. Um, he's not a professional actor. Um, our brilliant producer, Sue Kim, um, is the one who discovered Sebastian. She was um, she went to a, an event for um, a documentary series called College Behind Bars, and that um, follows um, incarcerated men and women who take part in um, a program that allows them to attend college classes and earn their degrees while incarcerated. And Sebastian was one of the people featured in that series. Mm. Um, and so he was on a panel at that event speaking and Sue was just really just moved so much um, by his honesty, his openness 
Um, and then um, she just she, she just sort of had this in, instinct that he could be the voice of Chul Su Lee. Um, and so she told us about him and um, and we reached out and he he um, he responded quite quickly, you know, that he was interested. Um, and then we sent him a copy of Chul Su Lee's published memoir and he read it and he said he was he was he just could identify so much with Chul Su's story. Um, and he came on board and um, just really embraced um, embraced. Uh, the process and the role, even though um, I'm sure it was very hard for him um, to revisit some of the trauma from his own incarceration. Um, but he said he really wanted to advocate so strongly to make sure that people could understand what Chosuli went through, you know, because it's so easy for all of us to judge, like, why did this guy, like, you know, after, like, like he had a whole movement of people, like, working, you know, for him for years to free him, and then why did he mess up so much after his release? And um, Sebastian really wanted to make sure that people could sort of just, just listen to him, try to understand what he went through, everything he had to overcome, um, and and before you know versus passing judgment so quickly. And so Sebastian just really um, helped us. Like he worked with us on script development, even. Uh, you know, um, revising our script that we had for Chilsuli to make sure we could bring out not just the physical violence of person, but the emotional trauma, you know, the depression, the loneliness. And so um, we feel so fortunate. Um, I I thank Sue all the time just for, for having this amazing idea and connecting us with him because, you know, we felt like finally when he came on, um, Eugene and I could have sort of that security of knowing like, okay, um, as hard as we've worked to make sure Chelsea's voice comes through, this this was sort of that final missing piece that we needed to feel like we could do it. Sebastian had me on the verge of tears just the whole time. <laughs> just really a beautiful, powerful performance. And I, I think um, I, I love when Chol Suli, he's being interviewed and he says something along the lines of, you know, when I was outside of prison, I, I wasn't an angel, but I also wasn't the devil as we all are, you know? Um, so I, I wanna know about your your process and showing those two sides of him without making it feel forced. That's a, that's a great question. Um, Cause it really was a difficult balance um, that, that we, had to, we had to navigate. There was just uh, a, all this material that was really quite intimate of Chol Suli, of phone calls that he had had with the reporter that, that we used later in the film. There's of course that video footage and then there's the memoir and, and the memoir is hundreds of pages long. So, so how do you emphasize um, how do you emphasize something that makes him feel like a coherent character? Um, I really just have to give credit to our editing team. They were just so, so amazing in terms of helping craft uh, a coherent picture of who he was. Um, that Aldo Velasco, Jean Chan, our co-editor, Anita Yu, um, it just really was so, it, in the earlier versions, uh, it was really hard to get a bead on Chelsu, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was because there was just so much material from so many places, but they just really winnowed it down until we really got a sense of who he was. And I think they, I just can't thank them enough for the job they did. You know, um, I, I love asking the question when we have directing tandems of who did what exactly and, you know, who was responsible for what. And, and in the case of the two of you, you know, um, you, you know, here we got what Eugene, this is your first film. And, yeah. and, and Julie, your first documentary, correct? So, so now you, we, we have, you know, you know, two two filmmakers 
that are either new to the forum, new to the and or just new to it completely, who are now teaming up. And so tell tell us about how you sorted things out between you um, throughout the course of filming. I'm from a journalism background, print journalism. <laughs> and so I've never worked on a film at all before. But Eugene has actually, you know, at least he's worked in in um, on documentary films before. So he had some some experience to draw from. For me, it was completely new. <laughs> and um, I think it was good that I was completely naive about how hard it would be. Uh, because otherwise, maybe I would have said no. I better not do this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it took us six years, as you probably heard. It took us six years to make this film. Um, but I just, you know, um, really, we. I know we worked our hearts out. Um, I think, um, in terms of like at least being able to, um, you know, rely on like I, the things that were familiar to me were like story research, reporting, and things like that. Um, and, um, but, you know, like, as Eugene was saying, it's like, I, I like to talk about also like the, the fact that this was not like a solo or a duo. This was actually like a chorus of people, just like, just like the movement, you know, you can't just cite one person or two people. It was like the whole movement that made it successful. And I, I feel like we've mimicked the movement, you know, it took us six years to make this film. And it was like, because so many people came in and like, the story moved them so much that they were willing to like put their all into it, that they, you know, put their, their passion and their creativity. Um, and, and that's why we were able to, to complete the film that we did, you know? Yeah. I appreciated obviously the, the main story, but I, I thought the sub story of investigative journalism was really important to layer into this because the times we're living in are very interesting. Um, and now knowing Julie, you, you work in news, just wanting to know, um, was that, was that, um, was that something that was in the story ahead of time or was it something that kind of sprinkled itself while you were working on the doc for six years? Uh, we always knew that um, the journalist K.W. Lee, who does that investigative mm -hmm. um, journalism, would be a key character in the film. Um, I don't know if you know, but he's actually a very influential figure for Eugene and me. He's my mentor of 30 years. He's, he's the person who inspired me to become a journalist in the first place. I met mm -hmm. him when I was 18 years old. Wow. He has quite a he's quite the force of nature. If you ever meet him yeah. in person, he's 93 now. Um, but he, he's also just the most, he has the most impressive, um, journalism background. You know, he covered, he's a Korean immigrant. He covered the, um, Jim Crow South. Uh, and as oh. he says, the yellow peril West. And then when you meet somebody, um, the first journalist that you meet in your life is like a Korean immigrant whose series of stories helped trigger a landmark Asian American movement to free a wrongfully convicted man from death row, suddenly like your whole world changes, mm. your whole worldview, you're, you're just transformed from that point on. And um, you start, I started to, it, it lit a fire inside of me. Mm. And I want, that's why I wanted to become a journalist. And also just, you know, you start to think about like, what, what are our roles, all of our roles in creating a more just society? You know, and so, yeah, we always knew K.W. Lee would just be a key figure. And he, you know, it was not just like his investigation. And um, and by the way, like he worked for six months to look into this case um, to see, you know, to to see if is totally, in fact, innocent of this crime. Um, and um, his city editor at the time was like, didn't want him to do the story because he was the chief investigative reporter 
for a Sacramento newspaper. And this crime happened in San Francisco. And so, you know, he had to really, you know, fight to do this. He had to, to, to look into it in his free time, you know, on weekends and after work. Um, but, but he, but he did it. And, um, I think, you know, when you think of KW2, it's not just his journalism. Chol Su actually like aroused something in, inside himself. He says um, he sort of like um, brought out his latent Korean identity because KW had just worked in mainstream newspapers all his life, you know, and, and there weren't that many Koreans that he would come into contact with, other Korean immigrants. So he felt an immediate bond with Chol Su. And so they had a very intimate relationship beyond just reporter and subject. Um, he became sort of almost like a father figure. So we just knew that relationship had to be, you know, um, it's just something that foregrounded the film. Yeah. Can can you tell me everything about American <laughs> civil rights attorney Tony Sarah? Because he is just <laughs> such a character. And I feel like not only for Chol Su's case, but also for this film, he just brings a pop of energy that kind of ignites something. <laughs> Did you ever I mean, see that film, True Believer? <laughs> that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> no. Well, that yeah, I mean, that was the film that was made in uh, in the years following the the Chosu Lee case, and it was a case that actually focused on Tony Sarah as the main character, played by James L. Woods. Um, <clears throat> and the film did not highlight the importance of the Asian American community. It did not. It, include really the movement in any way. And KW certainly wasn't in the film as well. Mm. So, so, I mean, Tony Sarah is an incredible figure, um, you know, but the, the thing that he said that to us that, he, that struck me was that he, you know, he's a surgeon. He comes in and does his job and he goes from case to case and does his job. And so that was the extent of his involvement with the case. I mean, he's an incredible presence in the courtroom, clearly, and we're, we're thrilled that we were able to get some of that into the film. But what we're happy about with our film right now is that we're able to sort of elevate, elevate the contributions of people like KW, of the community, and just sort of create this much more holistic and capacious portrait of what that moment in time was really like. Well, again, uh, you know, there, what, one of the remarkable things about the film to me is that, you know, as you're watching, you're going, well, um, you know, we, this, this case has been, you know, remarkably solved. So I guess we're going to, you know, we're done now. And there's so much more that, go, that goes on. And I think that that's to your credit, um, to, to both of you, that you're able to, you know, interweave something, uh, you know, that, that, that brings in elements like to me, it, it reminded me a lot of like the, the Rodney King thing, in fact, of, you know, again, you know, this person has to be an advocate. Are they prepared to be an advocate? Are they equipped? And, you know, and, and that goes so far beyond just the simple dra dramatic nature of, you know, of, of getting someone who's wrongfully um, incarcerated out. Uh, there's just a lot to chew on with the film. Uh, congratulations on it. Again, the film title is Free Chol Su Lee. We've been talking to the directors, Julie Ha and Eugene Lee. The film is screening at virtual Sundance 2022. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. Here we are at 
the virtual version of the 2022 Sundance Film Festival. Uh, my name is John Wildman. I am the editor-in-chief of FilmsGoneWild.com. With me is the super awesome duo from Bitch Talk Podcast, Angela Tabora and Aaron Lim. And on this particular one, we're going to be talking about Framing Agnes, which is uh, made its world premiere at Sundance. We've got the director, Chase Joint. We've got producer, Samantha Corley. Welcome to the show, you two. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. All right. We always start this off by um, introducing our audience to the film. They haven't seen it as yet before we start grilling you two with full of questions. <laughs> so uh, Chase, tell us about Framing Agnes. Framing Agnes is a doc feature that centers on never before seen files and we collaboratively task an extraordinary cast of trans actors who take on and embody and inhabit these roles. And we think the kind of meaning that gets made about trans people in both media and medicine. And I know Aaron wants to jump in right away, but let me have you start off with this because I'm a big fan of expanding what it means to be a documentary film. And you know, and 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 what we what we do with that format, the media we use, uh, the style we use, and this is another wonderful example of that, um, where there is uh, a, a great creativity using you know aping the uh, the old Mike Wallace uh, interviews um, and using that as a format to lead us in, and then also the um, you know interviewing people as we go along. I would love for you to for you two, both of you, to start off talking about how you mapped that out and why you thought that approach really would um, uh, in, bring to life the information from these interviews. Yeah, it's such a great question. And it's our favorite question because as we identify as documentary filmmakers or people who are interested in the nonfiction space, but really we're interested in that very fine boundary between fiction and nonfiction and all the stories that can happen sort of on that ring. and. You know, when we were looking at these incredible archival case files, one of the things that I found so is the relationship between the questions that doctors were asking of trans and gender nonconforming people in the mid-century and the questions talk show hosts were asking the same types of people in different environments. And so we thought, what happens if we collapse those environments and try to think about them at the same time? And I think where it becomes particularly geeky and interesting to me is, of course, thinking about the structure of the interview and its role in documentary and in documentary history. And trying to work on all of those levels felt us like a, an exciting opportunity to think about trans representation in new ways, because we feel like part of that conversation has become a little bit stale. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate the way that the film um, talks about a lot of different points as being a gender nonconformist or trans. And one of the points that uh, you two left in the film was talking about the cost of being trans and then more fully the cost of being trans um, with Georgia. So can you talk about leaving that story in and um, what it means to you both? So, you know, one of the things that our film reckons with is the way Agnes's story, a white, young, passing trans woman gets plucked out of a pile and mm, situated as a kind of exemplary case. And if we had a lot more time, I could tell you part of the reasons why I think that happens, but part of the reason is about the intersection of race, class, and gender. 
And what these new archival case studies reveal is a far more complex fabric of who we're actually talking to these doctors and researchers at the time. And so one of the things that I think our narrator, Jules Gill-Peterson, who's an extraordinary uh, historian of trans history, draws our attention to is A, the violence of a kind of erasure, that happens through this process, but also the violence of a new kind of visibility where we reattach our attention to someone else producing a similar kind of problem, right? So what happens when we put all of our sociopolitical motivation on black trans women? What kind of weight do they then need to hold in public space? And so it's interesting to be thinking about what happened with Agnes and then what's happening in the contemporary landscape. And it's kind of a way to return to the first question about form, that it's through a kind of radical juxtaposition of these contexts that we get to think about these things together. Yeah, and I'll just add, you know, I think that the as kind of the form and content go together and really serve each other here. Um, it'd be one thing to see um, George's story in the midst of, of these other stories, but because of the form and because we're playing with, um, you know, on camera, off camera, behind the scenes, um, what is true, what is real, we actually get to talk about that in a way that really invites people in and really, um, you know, we hope, lets an audience really think about who am I attaching to? What questions am I wanting answered? And why am I feeling like frustrated that I'm not getting answers? Um, and so I think in that way, like the form is is actually part of uh, or is necessary to tell the kind of story that that we set out to tell. Right. And I love how the form is. It's a conversation. It's an ongoing conversation. Hopefully it sparks new parts of the conversation that we never thought about before. It's the past speaking with the present and back and forth. It, it was just so, so beautifully captured. Um, and, and Chase, I wanted to know as director, you're directing actors to take on the roles of these people from the past, but you're also directing them as themselves, including yourself. You're also in the film and I'm so happy that you are. So can you can you talk about um, just those two, directing those two different worlds and, and also for yourself to, to sort of take on the persona of this interviewer where, where maybe you, you relate more to the interviewee? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for eliminating all of those various uh, roles and and overlapping complexities because we are trying to do all those things. And so the first way in which I'll answer that is to say that I am not alone and that to say that this is a kind of solo directorial pursuit is just frankly inaccurate, you know? So our co-writer, Morgan M. Page, our editor, Brooke Siebold, Sam, lots of interlocutors who are looking at me on stage being like, it's not white Mike Wallace enough. Like whatever you're doing there is a little bit chase joint and not Mike Wallace enough, right? And similarly, I hope that some of the work that the film does is to show you us finding those beats together. So I feel like the direction that's happening on stage is one, that is built through collaboration, finding those beats, figuring out what is most resonant because we're not attached to any sort of fantasy of completion or conclusion or truth as we relate to these subjects. Instead, we're trying to think what's here? What's a value? What does it mean to try to attach to histories in these ways? And that's a conversation that needs to be had with those who are choosing to step toward those inhabitations. I would also like to, to, to dig into the cast that you have um, because they're amazing, you know, and uh, you know, I know Jen, uh, she, she's been at uh, film festivals of mine and, and I'm a huge fan, uh, and, but all of them, they all had the common denominator of 
having an openness of spirit, which I think was like kind of so key to, to, you know, to, to, to get across and, and to let us as the audience into their particular stories, which of course was enhanced by the fact that you're interviewing them as themselves as well personally. So, so you know, one, they're, they're, they're wonderfully, giving wonderful performers as actors. Um, and at the same time, you know, we're getting that extra added depth. So please talk about how, um, you know, how you found them, how you got them on board, because man, they just, it's just a wonderful group. Could not agree more, you know, and to be clear, there are friends and colleagues and collaborators and community members. And I think one of the things that you've identified in your question, which feels critical to me, is that they're all people who are negotiating public lives, negotiating a choice to be in public as a trans person in a variety of different ways, most often through arts and cultural production. And so it was an ask that was not about a turn toward publicity for the first time, which I think so often documentary asks of its subject, and was rather a way to think like, what does being in public mean right now? Like, what does it mean that our actors are also those people who get plucked out of the pack and used as exemplary cases as the future of trans representation or as the star right um so hopefully there's a it's functioning on a few different layers and then you know for me it's about the specificity of their life histories so it matters to me that max wolf valerio is a poet that he's inhabiting henry who is a writer it matters to me that jen richards is someone who started a blog called we happy trans to network with trans people before the boom of the transgender tipping point and then inhabits barbara the most networked person in the archive. You know, it matters to me that I'm with Angelica Ross in a pre-production meeting talking about Georgia and Angelica stops me and says, I don't even need this summary because I know her, like I can feel her in my body, right? These are the kind of resonances that you can't cast for. You have to open up space to, to imagine. Yeah, and I think from, you know, from the perspective of getting to watch Chase work with our cast over, you know, multiple years that it took to make this project, um, just the amount of trust that went into the process and um, which again, I think reflects the project that we were trying to make and that the the process of making it actually is the project itself and and that trust and sort of like the communal reckoning with what is truth and the communal creation of the truth that you see on screen um, is is really remarkable, and and I think Jen said this in our um, our Sundance Q and A of like I had no idea what we were making while we were making it. <laughs> like I could not see this film until I saw this film, and just um, I think that's a huge testament to the like relational bonds and trust that were you know explicit and implicit throughout every part of the project. This this film is a lot about discovery and uncovering. And I want to know, was there anything that had to be left on the editing room floor that wasn't able to make it into the film that you wanted to share? You know, so one of the most glorious things about these transcripts is they, they invite and reveal an incredible sense of humor in all in the majority of our interview subjects and you see that emerge in the transcripts and there's a couple zingers that like don't <laughs> arrive because they didn't narratively make sense or they didn't emotionally make sense and i was so sad to leave them and to be perfectly honest they stayed in the film far too long because i didn't want to <laughs> let go um, but you know there's just like extraordinary personality and you know the other thing that's not in the film are things that our um actors explicitly said they didn't want to talk about 
And I just love it. Like, I'm so happy to make a project where I'm like, you don't want to talk about that? Great. Let's talk about something else. Like, let's mm. actually figure out the terms of our encounter together. Mm. Thank you. Well, maybe you can make a little comedy version of the <laughs> comedy <laughs> short version yeah. of the of the doc. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, uh, an important point that was brought up um, was, you know, clearly these clinics, this clinic that was done was not fully representative of, of, of the culture and the people at the time. But um, maybe that was a good thing. Uh, you know, maybe the people that weren't represented didn't want to be represented in that kind of when I when I thought about that concept, I was like, wow, holy shit, that's true. And then it completely changes just what we think of, of history and of the records. Um, so, so can you talk about that and, and just sort of what an eye-opening uh, realization that is? Yeah, that moment when, when Jewel said that on camera, like the whole room was just like, holy shit. You know, like it was like, you could, you could hear a pin drop. And I think, you know, everyone who's seen the film, even the people that worked on it, like always pinpoint that moment of like, wow, I've never thought about I've never thought about that. Like, what about the people, you know, who got away and and maybe they have the last laugh? And I, you know, I think it's just a testament to the brilliance of Jules of, of just being able to deliver it. Like, it's like so subtle, but like so powerful. I mean, that's like the moment that stands out, I think, for so many people. And I think we're like trapped in a cycle about diversity and inclusion that's about addition. Well, if we just add more, then we will get yeah. what we want from this moment. And I think that Jules really beautifully counters that and says like, turn a different way. Like think about a different set of questions that's not about like an endless addition to. And I just think it's very provocative and it's also unresolved the film. I think we're left to wonder like what is the power of that kind of suggestion and what can we do from that place and I don't know that we're having that conversation in very many places and so maybe our film can link up in some ways with other projects and other people who are trying to think about these really complex negotiations. Well you know I think it's, it's wonderful and, and, and it just reminded me in those that moment in particular and other moments that you know it's that uh, how important listening is you know, uh, you know, you know, as as an ally, you know, as, as you know, as anyone who's, you know, who's encountering the ego, you know, um, you know, even on our best case scenarios, you know, what, you know, trying to, to to do our best to understand or whatever, we can still make assumptions that we really need to listen a shit ton more before we act. And, you know, and, and honestly, I mean, that I, I really I so appreciated the film in in how much it illuminated so much beyond conversations that I've had um, with, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, trans filmmakers that I work with, friends that I, that I have and what have you. And, and it just was such another extension uh, beyond that to, to your great credit, um, both of you and everybody who worked on the film uh, really just thought the world of it. Um, again, the title of the film is Framing Agnes. Um, which has been screening at the um, Made It's World premiere at Sundance Virtual Style. We've been talking with our director, Chase Joint, and producer, Samantha Curley. Um, it's been really, really great talking to you guys about the film. Thank you so much. Yeah, what thank a you. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. 